And welcome to Louisiana Considered. On a Wednesday, I'm Adam Voss. Just ahead on the program today, we'll hear about the state of public transportation in New Orleans. And a week before Thanksgiving, we'll talk about kitchen safety. But first, the 19th Judicial District Court Recovery Program in Baton Rouge is an effort to provide supervised treatment and recovery services for people who come before the court as defendants who also have a drug and substance abuse problem. It used to be called Drug Court, but now the name focuses on recovery. The program this afternoon is holding a commencement ceremony, a graduation for a cohort of participants who have successfully completed the recovery program. To tell us more, we have Judge Donald Johnson, Chief Judge of the 19th Judicial District Court. Welcome to Louisiana Considered. Uh, thank you for giving our program an opportunity to uh, showcase the effectiveness of the evidence-based practices that we, we employ here at the 19th Judicial District Recovery Court. Thank you. We also have Cheryl Wyatt, coordinator of the 19th Judicial District Court Recovery Program. Welcome to the program, Cheryl. Thank you very much. First of all, can you familiarize us with this program and its goals? Uh, what kind of offenders who come before the court are eligible? Who is it that you focus on? Our participants consist of defendants who are involved with the criminal justice system. In order for a individual to be referred to our program, they have to have a felony offense. And that felony offense, it does not have to be a drug charge. It can be anything that is related to their use of drugs. Perhaps they are um, their burglary charges to support their drug habits. And anyone in the community, and we really want this to be known, that anyone can make a referral to our program if you're aware of someone that is involved in the criminal justice system that may have a substance use problem. Um, they cannot have any crimes of violence, any crimes that are sexual in nature. And the number one requirement is they have to want to be in this program. Hmm. Now, I understand this used to be called drug court, and now you call it recovery court. What's behind that identity change? What does that communicate? I'll, I'll tell you, the idea of the name change came about the, the participants in the program, the administrators, we are required to get annual training. And that's part of our uh, evidence-based practice model. And when I use the word team, perhaps the, uh, the normative criminal justice system doesn't think about a team that has come together to work on a problem. So this model is different from the criminal justice model where you have state versus defendant. This is state with the defendant, hmm. state joining with the defendant so that we can move a person forward and not have them to repeat their conduct. So the label was drug court because that was the name that started the original idea, which is treatment. We must treat these individuals for the substance that they're addicted to. So the approach is how do we assemble a team together? A prosecutor, the defense lawyer, the court, and the treatment team. It sounds like you have the latitude to not just administer justice based on somebody's perspective of what justice is, but to use judgment that's evidence-based, that is practiced, judgment that has some research behind it. Can you tell me a little bit about that? You mentioned evidence-based. Yes. We're, we're driven by data, so we're using tools that have been validated 
And we designed a program that if we adhere to all of the variables and the standards, then the predictive rate of success has substantially increased. So we're using that model. We're using an applied science approach because it's medicine involved and it's treatment involved. So we're using that model, a model that's therapeutic, to address the underlying behavior. So was this program meant to keep participants out from behind bars where they might otherwise be incarcerated, or is it meant for after serving of a sentence or when an offender is on probation or parole? How does that work? Actually, it's designed to to accomplish two things. The first thing is accountability. When I say accountability, what I'm explaining is the defendant has to accept responsibility for the criminal conduct. So the defendant will have pled guilty to the crime. Now, what we've done is by admitting and, and, and getting yourself through that phase, now we say, let's plan your success. Now, let's, let's make sure you succeed and not come back through this. So if you go through this program, you go through this model, you can graduate. And at the end of your term, the conviction can be set aside. You've earned the right to have your conviction set aside. And if you do not succeed, then your conviction will remain. So it's, it's, it's a way of putting the ball in the defendant's court. Now, we do reduce the level of reoffending. That's what's so great about these programs. We can show you the statistics that this program works. So we have less people offending. We have less people going back to jail. So yes, the answer is yes. That, that's, the way, that's the way it's designed. So tell us the nature of your success stories that you hear from participants. What kind of success rate do you have? What constitutes success? Well, the success stories that we hear, I now have custody of my children again. Um, My parents allow me back into their home again. I've never been able to hold down a job beyond a month or so, and I'm a supervisor on my job now. And so what we measure 90% of participants will achieve sobriety during their final phase. Um, The other thing that we do with our participant is we want to improve their quality of life. We track how many participants have found housing, how many participants are now employed. And one of the most important things that we see in our recovery court and we measure are the number of healthy babies that we now see. Because with healthy bodies, you know, our females are now able to carry a a baby to full term. Um, Our Supreme Court each year pulls statistics. And what they look for is, have there been any other convictions after individuals have graduated? And I hate for this to sound unreal, but our rate of recidivism is 0%. And that information comes from the Louisiana Supreme Court. Tell me, what drugs are the biggest concern in Baton Rouge right now? Yeah. So, of course, the number one drug now that we hate to hear about that's on the street is fentanyl. You know, it's It's mixed with other drugs. They're mixing it with heroin. They're mixing it with meth. They're mixing it with uh, marijuana, cocaine. And so when they take these substances, you actually don't know what you're getting, which can be very lethal. Um, We had a very difficult time 
July of this year in which we did lose two of our participants to fentanyl. Um, one had COVID and was waiting to go to treatment. The other one was just coming into the program and he was getting ready to go for his assessment the following day. Um, I went maybe three years ago before COVID, our number one problem was synthetic marijuana. Now that is just gone out the window. And now I would say our most fearful drug that our participants use is fentanyl. And mm. sometimes not even realizing that they're using it. So let me ask you a philosophical question here, if I may. How do you balance the public's demand for justice and the popular tough-on-drug crime stance with the public interest in reforming and recovery and keeping people out of prison and contributing to society? What's your role in that? Twofold, twofold. Let's, let's, let's consider the perspective of tough-on-crime and soft-on-crime. So in between that, we find what works. We find what works between toughness and softness. So that's what we're doing. We didn't just decide to do toughness. We didn't just decide to do a soft on crime. We decided to say, well, what works? And that is smart on crime. So we've shifted the discussion from toughness or softness to what works. And what that's why we say it's an evidence-based model. So we're being smart when we need to. For example, today, there were two subjects who had violated some of the rules. They were sent to jail today for violation of our code of conduct. Now, they will come back out, and if they qualify, they will return to treatment in our program. So we're tough when need be. So the, the framework of tough and, and soft, we're saying we're tough when needed, and we're smart at being tough. And so that's our model. Judge Donald Johnson, Chief Judge of the 19th Judicial District Court, thank you for your time today. You're, you're quite welcome. Thank you for the opportunity to present on your show. And Cheryl Watt, Coordinator of the 19th Judicial District Court Recovery Program, thank you for being on Louisiana Considered. Thank you, Adam. This is Louisiana Considered. Public transportation in New Orleans saw some big changes here in 2022, from new routes to a new app to lower bus fares. Every year, the advocacy group Ride New Orleans puts out a report on how transit is doing in the city and what they see as the road ahead. To learn more about what they found, our reporter Carly Berlin sat down with Ride's executive director, Courtney Jackson, and their youth community organizer and storyteller, August Green. So, Courtney, let's start with you. There have been a lot of updates from the Regional Transit Authority over the past year. Can you give us a quick rundown of what all has changed? Yeah. I mean, the Regional Transit Authority, Jefferson Parish as well, you know, took on this huge, huge program, uh, which is called a network redesign, where they basically took a look at what's working, what's not working, and how they can effectively change the lines on a map with the money that they have. So they didn't get a bunch of money to basically put new lines on the map. They took the money that they have. They did some extensive research, both in equity metrics um, and also some, some extensive outreach with transit riders. 
And after two years, they were able to come together and put paper to pavement. And what we're seeing is what is formerly called New Links. And we're seeing a brand new network. Uh, you're seeing lines that are uh, connected. You're seeing a lot of transfers. You're seeing faster service. You're seeing some more reliability. You're seeing lines that have kind of you know, been removed, all for the sake of, of having better transit for the New Orleans region. But Wright's report did find that a, a lot of issues have persisted, right? You know, particularly around unequal access to jobs for people who drive versus people who rely on transit. Can you tell us a little bit more about what y'all found? Yeah, for several years now, RIDE's state of transit has really hit on the access to job metrics. What we've been seeing that the, is that there's a large discrepancy between transit riders and car drivers. And this is mostly around what we looked at was access to jobs. If you have a car, you can reach practically all the jobs in the region in 30 minutes or less. Whereas if you have, if you don't have a car and you're a transit rider, you can reach almost none of the jobs, really, quite frankly, in 30 minutes or less. You're going to be better off if you have 60 minutes or more, but those are not going to be easy jobs to get to via transit. You're looking at a very low percentage, and it's just not equitable. And it's even worse for black and brown transit riders. Now I want to go over to August. One thing Ride's report highlights is the lack of bus shelters across the city, you know, places where you can sit down and be protected from the sun or the rain. So tell us a little bit about what your experience has been like riding the bus and how this lack of shelters has impacted you. So shelters are really important to just like safety and also like just taking time to rest. Sometimes you'll ride a bus and then you'll get as close as you can to your destination, but still maybe a a mile, three quarter mile walk from that bus stop. Uh, Our Bus shelters, though, are very few and far in between. Uh, Depending on where you get off on your bus route, I feel like it's about half a mile. Depending on your ability, you're not getting to a bus shelter, like, at all on some days. So I take the bus probably five out of the seven days a week. And often I've been caught in the rain and I've been, like, going to work. And sometimes, you know, I wear, like, dress clothes to go to work and then I'm soaking wet and I get and I show up. You know, you try to be presentable for certain jobs and then you can't because of the way that you just get to that job. Back to Courtney, you know, we've we've talked a lot about the problems with public transit right now. But tell us, you know, what what does Ride see as some of the most important next steps forward? Yeah, I mean, (laughs) there's so much to do as it relates to transit right now for the region. I feel like it's a never ending quest to get the small stuff taken care of. Um, and it's a little worrisome because there are some really big things coming down the pipeline that could really change the way the region gets to where they need to go. Um, you know, New Links was, was massive. And the way I like to look at it is it's setting the foundation for us to build on making a better transit system. The RTA is now moving into the BRT discussion, the bus rapid transit discussion, that could really make sure that folks that are coming from New Orleans East can get all the way to the West Bank in a shorter amount of time. But the only way that could happen is if you have priority lanes and and signaling. And so we're, you know, cautiously optimistic at Ride New Orleans because we still have stuff like bus stop shelters that we have to get taken care of. And, you know, the, the app is great, but it's not perfected. (laughs) 
the whole rider dignity piece because New Orleans deserves an, an, a great transit system. And I know one of the things that Ride has been calling for lately is free fares for youth riders. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about why that's something that you're pushing for and what impact you see that could have. Yeah, so Ride New Orleans, uh, we're, all of the work we do is centered around the transit rider. We started off with our Coalition for Quality Transit, and every move, move we make is going to be from their mouths to you know the campaign or the policy that we choose to move forward on. And what we realized is that we had a really large demographic that was missing, and that was the youth voice. And so Ride New Orleans started our youth transit leadership cohort, and we're really having this very in-depth discussion with youth about what they need, and they all said free transit. But we have to be super clear is that we don't want the RTA to pay out of pocket for this. We want them to keep all that money for operations. So we want to be really creative by partnering with the city or partnering with other organizations to find uh, some money so that we can start having that conversation around free transit. We're being told that youth need it. August, how you know how would free fares impact you and, and your peers who rely on public transit? Yeah, free fares would be almost like revolutionary, I would say. I feel like Ride calls our our demographic like opportunity youth because youth are just starting their ways into basically managing money, starting careers, getting their, their feet on the ground to be members of our community and our society. So it's really important that we have the least restrictions as possible. And transit, the actual cost is a burden because a lot of us aren't being paid very highly. A lot of us are sometimes doing like internships, which are underpaid, mostly a stipend. Like we don't have to get access to all the new jobs and careers that we barely have access to on the front end. And then to have these fairs that can, you know, really dig into the maybe 10 or so dollars you make. <laughs> like it's a limitation on our ability to achieve success. That was New Orleans reporter Carly Berlin speaking with Courtney Jackson and August Green of Ride New Orleans. This is Louisiana Considered. Thanksgiving is just over a week away, and because many families across the country will soon have their kitchens full of turkeys in the oven and cranberry sauce on the stove, we thought it might be a good time to revisit a conversation on injury prevention in the kitchen, a problem that is far more common than many realize. Earlier this year, Louisiana's Children's Hospital uh, hosted an event to promote cooking safety and burn accident prevention. Alana Schreiber, our managing producer, was in attendance. One of the many unforeseen consequences of the pandemic was an increase in at-home accidents, specifically burn injuries. It's really, really important, especially during this pandemic, that you're keeping an eye on your kids. Because with the pandemic, there is um, a lot more people confined to their home. Um, there's a lot more people who have maybe tensions are running a little bit high because we're not being as social creatures like we normally are. Um, so some of those are the things that are really leading to an increase in burn injuries. Dr. Nicole Kapari is a pediatric burn surgeon at Louisiana Children's Hospital. We are working with the New Orleans Fire Department, um, focusing on cooking burns. And so we're out here doing public education and doing some outreach and hoping to share the word with our community. Because as Dr. Kapari and her colleagues have found, there's a lot about burns that people aren't aware of. 
Um, I think one thing that everyone needs to know about burns is that it's a lot more common than people really think. Kelsey Helmstetter is the interim nurse manager over burns at Louisiana Children's Hospital. There is so much safety that you can teach your kids as well as adults um, when it comes to prevention, uh, when it comes to burns, especially with cooking burns. Um, we just wanted everyone to know that, you know, just something as simple as putting a lid on a pot on the stove to stop a fire or moving that pot handle into the middle of the stove is something that you can do just to prevent those burns. While the advice might appear obvious to some, it's important to reiterate. That's because burn treatment is not always accessible. Again, Dr. Nicole Kapari. Right now in the state of Louisiana, if you have a large burn in a pediatric patient, those patients will get shipped all the way down to Galveston, Texas, or to Gainesville, Florida. Those are the two closest verified burn centers. But that might not be for long. Louisiana Children's Hospital is hoping to gain state designation and verification from the American Burn Association. That will allow the hospital to build a specific burn unit, hire burn treatment staff across multiple disciplines, and hold caretakers to the highest standards of treatment. And so it's really, really important that the public knows that we are building this here in New Orleans because it will prevent all of these patients from being shipped away from their family. Burn surgeons work with pharmacists, occupational therapists, social workers, and of course, firefighters. I'm Matt Ricks. I'm the president for the Washington State Council of Firefighters Burn Foundation. Matt is also a firefighter himself, and when he's not doing his day job, he still finds a way to engage with the burn survivor community at a summer camp. We got involved about 10 years ago, and this camp's been going for the last 28 years, and it's for youth burn survivors, 7 to 17, and it's up in Washington State, and we get kids coming in, about 70 kids a year come to our camp, and they get a place to just go be kids not get all the stares and the ridicule that they normally get. Working at Burn Camp helps Matt and other firefighters stay involved in the lives of the same kids that they often rescue. So for the firefighters, we're the ones pulling them from the building or wherever it happened and taking them to the hospital. But normally we don't get to see what happens afterwards. We just drop them off and it's done. Now to see these kids healing and going on to have a full life again, it's so cool. And just last week, Matt paid a visit to New Orleans because firefighters, nurses, and doctors here, including Nicole Kapari, want to start a burn camp in Louisiana. We really want to bring that um, kind of that robust program and multidisciplinary approach to uh, the state of Louisiana because our, our children deserve it here um, and our burn patients deserve to become burn survivors. Burn camp might still be a few years away, but until then, Dr. Kapari and her colleagues plan to keep hosting events to engage the community in burn education, prevention, and treatment. That was managing producer Alana Schreiber reporting for Louisiana Considered. Thank you to today's guest, Chief Judge Donald Johnson of the 19th Judicial District Court and Cheryl Wyatt, coordinator of the 19th Judicial District Court Recovery Program, as well as our New Orleans reporter Carly Berlin and Courtney Jackson of New Orleans advocacy group RIDE. Our managing producer is Alana Schreiber and our digital editor is Caitlin Umholtz. Our engineers are Garrett Pittman, Thomas Walsh, and Stays engineer Aubrey Purcell. 
You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at noon and 7.30 in the evening. It's available on Spotify and Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. That's been Louisiana Considered on a Wednesday. I'm Adam Voss. Thanks for listening. Major support for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from Tulane School of Public Health.